Hey, Kevin here with a very special thanks to our two sponsors for this episode. Visit Philly, the organization that we all know and love that shows us off to the rest of the world. And Rec Philly, the agency and incubator, which is like a creative gym membership for entrepreneurs like me. Hit up their social media handles in the show notes and drop them a line to thank them for supporting the Philly Who Live show and for helping us all to raise $900 for Broad Street Ministry. Please enjoy this live episode with Mike Salamanov and Steve Cook. And once more, thank you so much to Visit Philly and Wreck Philly. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the host and producer of Philly Who, Kevin Schmidlin. Wow. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today in the special one-year anniversary live episode of Philly Who, we're chatting with Mike Solomonov and Steve Cook. Mike and Steve are the chefs behind Cook and Solo, a collection of original restaurants including Zahav, Federal Donuts, The Rooster, Diesengolf, Goldie, and Abe Fisher. At the time of this interview, Cook and Solo had together accrued four James Beard Awards, which are basically the Oscars of food and dining, for their restaurants and cookbooks. Just five days after this recording, they took home their fifth James Beard as Zahav won the award for Best Restaurant in the Country. In this episode, you'll hear how these two restaurateurs came together to bring Israeli cuisine to Philadelphia and, in doing so, transformed the Philly food scene. But it wasn't always sunshine and hummus. As you'll hear, when Zahab first opened, it struggled mightily and was in danger of failing thanks to the 2008 financial crash, an intimidating menu, and the revelation to Steve that Mike was struggling with addiction. Hear the story of how Cook and Solo overcame these challenges and in the 10 years since built a Philly restaurant empire. Now on Philly Who. And I was like, Steve, if you want me to like walk away from this, I can walk away. And he was like, you're not going anywhere. And then he was like, I would do anything for you. Just a heads up, there is some cursing in this episode. These days, if you'd like to have dinner at Zahav, you have to plan ahead by at least two months. That's because reservations for any given day open up at midnight exactly 60 days prior, and they're usually all gone about two minutes later. When you do get there to enjoy the experience, you'll see a buzzing, massive restaurant filled with excited diners and probably some celebrities from all over the world. This is especially true recently, since just weeks ago, Zahav won the 2019 James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant. It's the hottest reservation in town. What's most impressive, though, about Zahav's red-hot status as the go-to restaurant on the East Coast is that it's over 11 years old, which is like 120 in restaurant years. Even the best ones usually don't last that long. What's even crazier is that in addition to topping the Philly food charts for a decade via Zahav, Mike Salamanov and Steve Cook have launched several other thriving restaurant brands, including Federal Donuts, which is a cult social media favorite fried chicken and donut shop, and The Rooster, which donates 100% of its profits to Broad Street Ministry. 100%. 
Of course, this success didn't happen overnight. Zahav is a bit of an underdog story, as you'll hear. And Cook and Solo actually had complete opposite journeys before meeting each other. Mike was a college dropout floating back and forth between his birthplace of Israel and the Pittsburgh area. He stumbled his way into working for an Israeli bakery without even speaking the language when he was 19, just because he needed a job. Steve, on the other hand, was a super employable Wharton grad who got the textbook dream job of being a Wall Street investment banker immediately after graduating. It took a while for them to discover their talent as chefs and eventually team up, but throughout their journeys, the one thing that they had in common was their Jewish heritage, and that they both, at first, didn't really care about it. Mike's family, to his dismay, actually moved to Israel and he wanted nothing to do with it. And Steve's family, though all in Pennsylvania, was even more devout. I'm sort of the black sheep of the family because my older brother became a rabbi and my younger sister became a Jewish educator, and I was the one that was like faking stomach aches on Friday night so I didn't have to go to synagogue. <laughs> so you didn't want to be a rabbi, you didn't want to go into Jewish education. What did you want to do when you grew up? I had no idea. I mean, I, I distinctly remember being 17 years old and filling out college applications, and I was filling out the Penn application, and so you had to check off like one of the schools at Penn, and I didn't have a particular interest in business at the time, but like growing up in the 80s and like watching NBC TV shows on Thursday nights, I definitely, I definitely remember thinking like, what would Alex B. Keaton do right now? <laughs> so I checked off the, the warden box, just thinking like, I don't know what I want to do, but at least I'll be employable when I graduate. Right. <laughs> so you, you took a job on Wall Street. I got really, really lucky because I got, I was hired by these two guys. There was one guy that was like 10 years older than me and then another guy that was like 20 years older than me and we were like this sort of three generation team for about six years and they're still very good friends of mine. And in fact, they're two of the biggest investors in our restaurants today. It was a lot of work. It wasn't like the horror story yeah, that yeah. you read about. <laughs> but but it, you, it didn't feel like it was really struck in your passion, was it? I think sitting in like that cubicle the first day and like, literally like August of 95 or whenever I started the job, I was like, this isn't going to be for me. But it took me a long time to work up the courage to just to really say, you've got to make a change. Like you've got to find something that you really want to do. Do you remember the moment that you finally had that courage? Was it, did something click or was it a gradual thing? It was sort of like a step, two steps forward, one step back. I, I literally like after three years, I walked into my boss's office and I was like so nervous and I was like, I'm, I'm quitting. And I went, um, I traveled for a while and ended up like living in Spain for three months by myself in this house with no electricity, no running water. I was reading like, you know, I was, I read like Anna Karenina in a day. Like I was just, <laughs> all, I was just like by myself, you know, and I would had a little camping stove and I would cook meals, you know, at night by the light of a like, gas lantern and drink wine and read and like smoke cigarettes. And I was like, I'm gonna, you were so cool. <laughs> I was so cool. I was like, yeah, it's all, I was like, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna cook. I want to cook. And then I landed back in New York and literally as soon as I like walked off the plane, I'm like, oh shit, I, I'm unemployed. <laughs> so I went, I ended up going back to work for three more years for the same guys. <laughs> what did they say when you came back? Were they like, what are you doing? They didn't make me feel too bad about it. I don't know what they said to themselves behind the, behind, <laughs> but they were, they, they welcomed me back and, um, 
I did make a deal with them. I said, I want to go to culinary school at night. So two, it was three days a week. It was Saturdays, it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so Tuesdays and Thursdays, I had to leave the office at four o'clock. And like leaving the office of a Wall Street investment bank at four o'clock in the afternoon is like not showing up at all yeah. for the day. So it was really a big deal that they supported me and let me do that. And I said, I don't want it to seem like I'm coming in, going to go to cooking school and then bolt. I'll commit to staying for like another year. So I ended up staying for three more years and, and knowing all along that eventually I was going to leave and, and go start a career in, in food. Yeah, so when you did that, why did you do so in Philly? Well, I was sick of New York. <laughs> uh, living, I don't know, living in New York was great, but it's a hard place to live, I think. And I, I also felt like there was more of an opportunity in the culinary world to make a mark in Philly because New York was so well established and Philly was just at the beginning of this like food revolution. Yeah, so, so tell me about building momentum into actually starting a restaurant, right? Because you, you don't just like move to Philly and then the next day start a restaurant, right? So, so how did you get that going when you really, had you had any experience working in, at restaurants? No experience at all. I was terrified um, walking into my first kitchen. I thought I was like totally unprepared, totally inadequate. And I was working really hard and loving it, but I was also very conscious of the fact that it was, it was a second career. I was older than maybe a lot of like first and second year line cooks. And I also knew, you know, I just felt like you're going to be working this hard. You might as well be doing it for yourself. And so I, that's when I, about, after about two years, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to open a, a place. And you opened Marigold Kitchen. Yeah. 2004. Do you remember the first day that it was open? Yeah, we did 13 covers. That 13 covers probably felt like 100 to me at the time. So I was like, this is great. But we probably should have known better because, I mean, I went to Penn and I knew that like 45th and Larchwood was like at least five blocks past where like Penn students at the time were warned not to go past. Marigold was an awesome laboratory and a special place, but it was never going to be like a huge financial success. But it, just to be able to like pursue my dream and pursue my vision there was really yeah. awesome. As, as the first year went on, were there any surprises, things that came up that you didn't expect when it came to running a restaurant? It was a, it was a hard year because I had gotten engaged literally right before we opened the restaurant. Cause I was sort of afraid that if I didn't do it then, like my wife would say no, like once she knew what it was like, she was at the time a high school teacher. So like she would be gone before I woke up and I would asleep before I got back. So it was a really hard year. So, so there came a moment when you hired somebody to replace yourself, right? As the chef. Do you remember when that moment came? Was it hard for you to admit that yourself that you had to hire somebody to be the chef of your restaurant? No. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm pretty practical as a person and, and, and I think honest with myself and if it's not working, it's not working and there's no point. I mean, that's the sort of attitude we apply to the restaurant. So you can't like you, you work really hard, you know, you put everything you have into it. Sometimes things just don't work. Yeah. And you, and the quicker that you can come to that realization, the quicker you can actually do something about it. And I think what we did was pretty awesome. Um, cause that's when Mike and I first started working together. So how did you find the chef that you would wind up hiring? I mean, the industry's changed a little bit, but back in the day it was like, I would always hear about Mike because he was the other Jewish line cook in Philadelphia. <laughs> so I knew about him. And in fact, my first apartment was 2028 Green Street and you were at 2026 or 20... Next door. Next door. But we never met. Wow. But when I started like looking in earnest for someone, I had talked to 
I talked to Mark Vetri, who I had been introduced to when I moved to the city. And he kind of, I knew about Mike a little bit through Mark. And then also my wife is from Pittsburgh and grew up with Mike. Basically yeah. their families were friends. Mike's mother was my uh, wife's middle school English teacher who my wife credits with like turning around to like wanting to be a teacher. So it was a very special sort of relationship between the families. So um, and you didn't know that you were next door. We didn't. That's know. crazy. Yeah. So we just, we met and, um, it was very irresponsible decision on both of our parts. Cause we met for a coffee for like an hour. And after that we were, we were, we were doing it. So tell us more about your family that he alluded to. Who, who did you grow up with? So I grew up, uh, in Pittsburgh in Squirrel Hill, but I was born in Israel. My dad is, um, from Bulgaria originally, but basically Israeli. And my mom was, grew up in East Liverpool, Ohio, which is like an hour west of, uh, of Pittsburgh. So, so how old were you when you, so you said you were born in Israel. How, how old were you when you moved to the States? I think I was States? like three years old okay. when we moved to the States. And then when I was um, 15 years old, we moved back to Israel. The whole family? The whole family moved back. And, and I, it was your parents, you? My parents, me and my brother, David, uh, who was younger. And I didn't, you know, I was 15 years old. Obviously, moving to a different country was like not what I wanted at the time. Right. Did you speak the language? No, no, not, not even, not even a little bit. I, they spoke mostly English in the house and then I had like Hebrew school, Hebrew, which is not real Hebrew. So, uh, I could count to 10, right. <laughs> say a prayer, you yeah. know, sing happy birthday. Where's the bathroom? Same three. Yeah. Yeah. Bathroom, share team. So still, I still remember that. Um, so we moved back and I, I threw a fit and was like, I'm going to stay for one year. Um, which is not like. You know, and, and basically my parents were like, if you come for one year, you'll go to an American boarding school, just give it a shot. And then if you want to go back, you can, you know, which seems like a crazy idea. Now, as a parent, I'm like, there's no way I would ever let my kids do that. But they they did. I was really, really difficult. So my brother, David, like assimilated, went to a public middle school, learned Hebrew, basically became Israeli. I, uh, I went to this boarding school in this town called Partizkana, which uh, at the time was like where every immigrant would go and farm. It was this big agricultural uh, school, and it was so different than the sort of middle class to upper middle class privileged life that I was living here in the states, because no, nobody cared about any any where you came from at all. And like once a week, we'd be out in the fields, like picking pomelos or shoveling dirt and moving it to another part of the farm, you know. So, and also it was in the '90s, and there was a huge wave of. Um, Russian and Ethiopian immigrants. And so we were like, we thought we were like badasses, you know, and then we would meet, meet like, tr you know, people that were basically fleeing like persecution, you know, and even on the Russian kids on their passport, it said like Jewish, you know, which is like a pretty hardcore thing. So we got our asses kicked by like m many nationalities. And we also, at that time too, that was like, we watched peace happen with Jordan in real time. And, and it was a really exciting time, I think, for Israel. And also over there, you can, um, at that time, you could hitchhike wherever you wanted. And there was like very little threat of, of something terrible happening. Um, so we would really just like travel and it was very carefree. And I think probably the most important year of my life. I mean, did you enjoy that year or were you counting the days to get back to the States? Well, sort of both. I had this idea. I was super stubborn and I was like, I have to get back. This sucks. There's no cable. Um, you know, I, I finished high school, 
weaseled my way into university uh, in Vermont and went to UVM and dropped out three semesters later. But yeah, I basically, you know, spent my parents' hard-earned money on like, you know, smoking pot and snowboarding, and I dropped out and ran away back to Israel. Wow. With um, not a lot going on in my life. And I had no skills, really. You know, I had like minimal Hebrew and like three semesters of like studio art. Why did you go back to Israel? That's a great question. I mean, that's a, I had nowhere else to go. I had dropped out of school. I was like um, struggling like with addiction. And my mom was like, please come back. You know, we're sort of concerned. There was nowhere else that I could really be. Yeah. So I ended up in this town of Korsaba, walking up and down the street, basically asking like shopkeepers if they needed help or if they needed like labor. And, and, you, could, and you could barely speak their language. Yeah. I mean, the job market is like not huge for somebody that doesn't speak Hebrew and is like a studio art major in Israel. So <laughs> who knew? Yeah. And I got a job working in a bakery, but I grew up with my grandmother's cooking and her, it was a very, it was like Sephardic Bulgarian cooking. So a lot of like savory pastries. And if anyone's ever been to Israel, you know, on like every corner, there's like borekas and the rogalach. And those are things that I had always loved. And so I show up at this bakery and I'm like, borekas, okay. Hey, can I work here? And they were like immigrant worker and American. It's kind of a twofer for them. And so I, they kicked my ass a bunch and I learned, you know, I wasn't like, I want to be a chef. I was like, I need to, you know, have a job. And they were like, um, here's like a pizza cutter, chase around rats for like, you know, all day or scrub uh, sheet trays. Um, I worked, uh, that was a learn, uh, a word that I learned really quickly was magash or magashim, which means sheet trays. Cause I would scrub them for like 12 hours a day. And, and it was um, awesome. I fell in love with it. So you liked that grunt work. So here's the thing. I was used to like not working hard at all and really taking, right? And being sort of like a recluse. It, when you work in a bakery, especially in Israel, it's sort of the opposite. The bakery is like city hall. Nobody gives a shit about carbohydrates in that country. Everybody eats starch. Everybody eats pastries like three times a day. And every kind of person works in a bakery. You know, and you would learn like in five different languages how to like insult somebody's mother, you know, <laughs> and then also every kind of person like uses the bakery, you know, on Fridays, whether whether or not you're religious or, or um, secular, you go and buy challah, you know, and uh, so it was such a different life that I was living. I was like working hard, really, really hard for almost no money and like giving and giving and that felt really good. Yeah. You know, at what point did you start to think that you wanted to actually, you know, learn to be a chef? Well, so I got a job working up the street at this like cafe. Um, and that I just did that because it was like 20 more cents an hour or whatever. I was making almost nothing. So it was like a little bit more than nothing. And, um, I started to cook, you know, and started to like create dishes. And that was really stimulating. And it was like something I was good at. And, you know, I wasn't like in jail or dead. And so my family was super fired Pumped. up about that. Yeah. And uh, I really loved, like I learned how to speak Hebrew. I really loved the intensity of it. I really loved being busy and making things. Um, and yeah, I remember one night actually I was cooking and everybody, nobody goes to sleep in that country and everybody eats at all hours. <laughs> like on a Thursday night at like 6 a.m. we'd be cooking. Um, and I remember one night at like 3 a.m. or something like that, it was like one of the many waves of, uh, 
of um, like the hits that we get. So the ticket board was full of tickets, and the guy was working ne uh, working next to named Yossi sliced his thumb so bad that it was like squirting blood. And I was like, dude, you got to go to the hospital. And he's like, you know. And so he puts <laughs> he puts a he puts a pan on the stove, gets it super hot, and cauterizes his thumb, and then throws the pan on the ground and cooks for like another six hours. And at that moment, I knew I wanted to be a chef. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. We were making like $3 an hour, too. I mean, it was totally insane, but I loved it. And, and it was something like I felt really good doing it, you know? And so I went to um, culinary school in like West Palm Beach, Florida, because um, I have family in Florida, because I'm, I'm Jewish, right? So, uh, and then also uh, because I'd spent all the money on like three semesters of nothing, so I, there, there was no... There was no more funds for like fancy culinary school, but it was cool. I, I did really well. I loved it. I ended up meeting um, a girl down there that was from New York, and we were like, "Let's move to New York." And we, she had a brother in Philly, so we stopped by Philly in like early 2000, you know, and went to like Susanna Fu, Brasserie Perrier, Striped Bass, you know, on Walnut Street. And I was like, "Why are why would we move to New York? It's so goddamn expensive." Wow. Let's just stay here. And that was it. I, I got a job working at a restaurant called Avenue B, which was next to the Kimmel Center, and then Stripe Bass, and then after that, Vetri. Was it a long conversation to change the plan to not move to New York and to move to Philly instead, or was it just that quick? I think that you kind of know what, what your life will be like in New York as an entry-level line cook. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I, was, I applied to like Le Cirque and um, Danielle, and, and, I, and it would have been awesome but i think that you know i didn't love the idea that like what i had to do was go to new york and then you work in new york for a couple of years and then you go to france or spain and work for free for a few years and then you come back and open one fancy restaurant and get a bunch of awards and die you know and that's not that's not it that's what i think our dream was right when you became a chef steve like it wasn't the idea that you could be a restaurateur or there was like a space for fast casual, or you could really cook Israeli food. It was like French, Italian, possibly Asian, and then you get a Michelin star, and that's it, you know? And, and I think that there's something really special about Philly where you, it's just not, it doesn't have to be like that. There is room, there is a little bit of flexibility in the way that you can live, you Right. Know? So you would go on and take a trip back to Israel, right? Like, did, so did you keep in contact? Your family stayed in Israel while you were here? Yeah, they were in Israel the whole time. And so I would go back to visit. And, and when I was at Vetri, um, my uh, younger brother, David, was, did what every other kid does uh, in Israel, basically, and, and joined the military. And then I hadn't been back in years. My mom was like, come back to Israel. I'll buy you a plane ticket. You just have to cook dinner for my friends. Your brother's on vacation, you know, from the, the army, you get like a little month before, a month break before, and it coincided with my veteran break. So I went back there. The meal that I cooked for our friends, what I thought was like five people around a kitchen table it was like two nights, 20 courses, like 20 people. And <laughs> so I'd like shop for this, this thing. And so David and I really connected and traveled the country and I learned like what Israeli food was, not, not through the eyes of a chef or like a tour company or anything like that, but my brother, who's like not a foodie and 21 years old, but he knew where, where that Amba came from Iraq. He knew where the best couscous was. He knew the heritage, like the lineage of like the Boreka that I fell in love with and traced it back to like Spain. Yeah. And like everybody there kind of gets that because we all love food, right? So 
a few days before his release, he was killed actually in service. Um, and that was about a month after I had visited him. So obviously after he died, that was, you know, that I didn't want to cook Italian food anymore. And I, I went back to Israel uh, and um, Mark Vetri actually, um, I told him I wanted to go back uh, a few months after Dave was killed and cook for my brother's army unit. And Mark was like, I'm going to come with you and we'll roast a suckling pig. And I was like, you can't do that for... <laughs> Pretty sure the IDF isn't gonna pay for that pig, but... And then he was like, we'll make Gossabuco. And I'm like, yeah, right. So we made, we made schnitzel for 300 soldiers. And, <laughs> and it was that, you know, that experience, I think, for, for him was really sort of uh, life-changing. You know, he flew over to Israel on a birthright uh, plane. So it was like 18-year-old American kids getting wasted, going on this like vacation. And he was super tired when I picked him up because he got no sleep because it was like, you know, spring break or whatever. And we drove all the way up. We cooked this meal like at the north, the sort of on the border with Lebanon uh, where Dave was killed. And at the end of the night, he looked really shitty actually. And I was like, what are you like super tired? And he was like, I just, uh, we're cooking for all these like kids that were like your brother's age. And I was on this I was on this plane this morning with a bunch of kids, also your brother's age, that were like partying. And now we're surrounded by these kids that are like covered in mud that have like four minutes to like eat before they have to go out there and like defend a border like your brother sort of died doing. And, and something sort of changed with him. And I think that's probably where, you know, me not wanting to cook Italian food or French food and, and maybe being more interested in my heritage probably started. After Mike came back to Philly, word spread that Marigold Kitchen was looking to hire a chef. The current chef, Steve Cook, was already burnt out and wanted to take a step back from the day to day. Mike and Steve got together for coffee, learned about each other's Jewish heritage, and decided to give it a shot. Cook, meet Solo. I took a step back from the restaurant. There was like, I think for like a month or two, I was like hanging out in my apartment in, in my robe <laughs> and um, not coming to the restaurant. And I remember early on, Mike called me and it was like, we don't have enough. He's like, we don't have enough money to pay the dishwasher. Um, I guess it was like the front of the house manager who was doing payroll was like, there's not enough money, but like, it's okay. We'll like pay them later. And Mike called me and he was like, this isn't right. And I just knew that's the moment that I knew that like, this was a guy that like had a set of values that like I could relate to and that like would represent the restaurant the way that I would want it to be represented. So then when did the, the idea start to form that you might open a separate restaurant together? I think pretty, pretty early on. I mean, we would sit on the back steps of like the, the Marigold kitchen. There was like a back door and it led to this set of steps down on the street where we would often sit while we were waiting for customers to come in. And, um, <laughs> it happened five a, times a night. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot, we, we had a, we had a long, a long time. I mean, I think, I don't know what the cumulative number of hours on those back steps that we s spent talking about food, but that was where a lot of our ideas were hatched. And I remember you took a trip to Israel after you got married and you came back. And that was when you started talking about this way that people ate in Israel and why wasn't it happening here? Why was nobody doing it here? I also remember, I think for any like cook who came up in Philadelphia at the time we did, like this restaurant Amada was like a major 
sort of beacon for all of us because it was like a chef cooking food that was meaningful and personal to him, but doing it in like a grand scale and actually making money. So we were sort of always talking about the idea that people were now accepting of tapas and small plates and, and the food of Israel was very similar to that. In fact, predates that. Yeah. I mean, I remember actually going to a place, there's this little neighborhood, um, the Hatikva section of Tel Aviv, which was um, pretty heavily like Iraqi and Yemeni. And you'd go on this block and there were all these restaurants that had this, there was a, there was like a bakery, not an actual bakery, but it had a taboon, like a beehive oven. And there'd be one guy just whipping lava bread on the side of this oven. And every restaurant on that block would run, the server would come over, ask you if you wanted like salads or whatever. You place an order, they'd run down the street grab the lava, come back in. So, and then, then you'd be presented with like 20 different salads that were from all over the world, right? And then the lava would come, which is from Iraq. And then, you know, you'd get like foie gras, goose liver foie gras cooked on a stick over charcoal. No fancy cherry gastrique, no brioche, literally like liver on a stick over charcoal and kebabs. And, and it was just so fascinating. And it was like, why does anybody want to eat any other way than this? I mean, it was just so good. And at that time, deconstructing, using meat glue, you know, clarifying and sort of, it was like watering everything down. And it was so, everything was so intellectualized. I was like, man, there's just, this is the way to eat, dude. They don't even give you like utensils, you know? And <laughs> there was like ashtrays everywhere. Like it was just bananas, but it was like as a somebody that was interested in food and somebody that loved cooking, there's nothing that is more exciting than bread cooked a la minute. There's nothing more um, uh, savory than the smell of like lamb fat dripping on charcoal with like za'atar and trina. And it's like when you can tell the story of Israel, the good and the bad through a meal without even having to discuss it, it was really you know, it was kind of the aha moment. Yeah. So as you, so you two believed in this concept, was it hard to get others to believe in what would become Zahav? Not easy. Not easy. I think that if we were just like, we're going to open a falafel shop, they would have got it. But it was a lot of like, what? Israeli rep? What? You know? But I mean, I don't know. Steve <laughs> still had a lot of connections in the investment banking world and <laughs> could write a mean business plan. And, and, you know, we, convinced, um, you know, people that loved us and trusted us uh, to give us a little bit of money. Did you guys trust the vision that this would happen? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's... It know, was a long time at ago. At a certain point, you're like, you've signed your house away, you know, and you've taken all this money from, you know, you've taken all this money from the bank, your house is on the line, and um, you've taken money from, like, the people that, you know, you're close people that are the closest to you in the world and you've, they've trusted you with their money. And there's a certain point where it's like, you're already too far in it. It doesn't actually matter if you still believe in it. Like you have to believe in it. And that's, you know, this was like, I mean, we opened Marigold, we opened for like $150,000 and Zahav was like an exponential step up. It was a, you know, we weren't really like ready to manage a project like that. We didn't know it until it was too late, but um, it was a very stressful, very, very stressful opening may 5th 2008 right was was day one do you remember day one the first weeks what was it like what was an average day like long hard really 
we did the 72 covers the first night it's off but we just didn't know but we, we did not know what we were doing and i think that we at that time too the menu you know we had like zahav the dining room and then we had the quarter and that was like what i thought would be sort of noteworthy cuisine that was like tasting menus and um and then zahav was like copy pasted food from israel which is fine but it doesn't um the context isn't right and none of you guys really cared that much about it whether i thought my shakshuka was like as good as like dr shakshuka in yafo it didn't really make a difference because I'm also not a doctor, but he, but you're not, it doesn't, the, the context is the most important thing. It doesn't really matter. It's the way that you sort of like tell the story and the way that you present everything. And, and um, yeah, it really, it was not a great time to open a restaurant. Yeah. Well, that was 2008, right? Yeah. So the economy wasn't doing so well either. Economy was terrible. Um, it was the election year. So people were glued to their TVs. The Phillies won the World Series. We didn't have a TV in the restaurant. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I feel very fortunate. Back then, I think back then it was before maybe the onslaught of social media and blogs. And you, thank God, you had a little bit more time to like get your shit together. And we didn't know what we were doing. And we needed that time. We needed a lot of time. And we were very lucky that we were able to like survive long enough to figure out what you know, how, how we were going to communicate, how to understand what we were doing and then figure out how to communicate that to the guests. And I don't think, and like today, you don't have that much time. So I feel lucky that like we opened up, as crappy a year as 2008 was to open a restaurant, like, I don't know if the same, under the same circumstances in 2019, like it could have been, you know, open and close in six months. Oh, yeah, yeah, no time at all. In those initial six months when you were learning and experimenting, were there any days that you thought that you were going to have to close it and Zahav would be no more? Many, many days. Yeah, every day? <laughs> many days. We, I, we kept, I kept for years and years and years, I kept a $10,000 check in my um, filing cabinet from Mike's dad. It was uncashed because I was like, Mike, we might not make payroll next, you know, next week. We, like, need some money. So Mike's dad, you know, was willing to help us out. And fortunately it was like literally that moment that things turned around for us and we never had to cash it, but sort of kept that as a, as a reminder of how close things got. Before we get to that moment where it did turn around, when you go through something like that, you don't know that it's going to turn around, right? You have no idea. How do you get through those times when you're, you've got so much on the line, things are just not going right. How do you get yourself to get through that? I, think that without like partnership with Steve, I just don't, I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine doing that by myself. I mean, I, I couldn't have, I would have like died. But um, I think that we just spent a whole lot of time. It's actually very similar to like what we do now, which is just sit and contemplate and, you know, unwrap and kind of argue a little bit and get to a good solution. It, when you have not taken a paycheck in like a year and you're calling your parents to borrow money to make payroll, you know, you, you learn really quickly. You have to make decisions. And there's also kind of a fuck it thing too. Like, well, we really have nothing else to lose. We're probably going to close, you know? And at that moment, I think we could be really honest with ourselves about what we needed to do, like what our responsibility was as people, um, you know, as a sort of conduit between Israel and the States, but also like the, our responsibility to our guests. And it wasn't, it wasn't, sort of aping it. It was like really telling a story with the food. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, it was in this time period that, <clears throat> that it came out to you guys, that Mike, that you were struggling with addiction. Now, as much as you're willing to say, how did that affect these times? How did that affect your partnership? Well, it <laughs> made things exponentially more difficult. That was at the same time. I mean, I called to ask my dad for money like 50 days after being out of rehab and detox, which was like 60 days after Steve found out that his partner, that we've invested everything together, collateralized everything together, was hiding a drug addiction. So, you know, needless to say. How did Steve react when he found that out? He, Steve, the first things that he said were, we, we know that you need help. We know that you have a problem and we want to get you better. And that was it. And then drove me to detox. He took him. He took you. He took me to detox. And then I was in rehab for 10 days. And then I came out of rehab and I couldn't like, you know, I thought, you, you know, you, you, you get clean and you, you know, go to detox and you go to rehab and then you go to some A meetings and then, or whatever it is that you do and you're good. And I couldn't like, couldn't get it together. It wasn't just the, um, the use, it was like the behavior, you know, and I really couldn't, it, 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 there came a point where I like literally couldn't be in my car by myself. And because you would just go, because the problem with this stuff is that it's not, it's just, you know, the physical addiction is one thing, but if anybody has been through this before or, known, or had family members, and the reality is that you probably all have, you know, you can't get from one block to another in early sobriety without thinking about using. It just can't happen. And so I couldn't carry money on me. And to this day, I still don't like carrying $20 bills. I couldn't drive. So I was like, Steve was like, I will pick you up at your 12-step meeting and I will drive you to work and did that every single day for a year. Yeah. Picked me up. I went to, a, I started going to a 12 step meeting at seven 15 in the morning because it was the opposite. Like my, I would go to bed in addiction at seven 15 in the morning. So it was like, gotta get up early, go to this meeting. Steve would pick me up at Rittenhouse every morning with his son, Leo. And they would, we would drive in, drop Leo off at daycare and then he would drive me to work yeah. like every day. So Steve, again, as much as you're willing to share, you find this out, you're going through, you're, you just opened up this restaurant, it's not going well. You find out this surprise about your business partner. Your reaction was, was noble. It said, hey, we gotta get you through this. What was going through your mind? I mean, first of all, I, you know, Mike and I had known each other at that point you know, for over three years. We were very, very close. So naturally, like, you know, I wanted to help him as much as I could. Um, it was complicated by the fact that we had this sort of albatross of a business that we were trying to figure out what to do with. And, um, you know, you look at it and there's really only one path forward, you know, it wasn't going to work without Mike. We weren't, I wasn't going to, you know, leave him behind. And, and, and so that provided a lot of clarity because it's like back to your early point, earlier point about like, how do you, how do you manage through these, you know, these difficult times in the face of failure? For me, it's just find something to do. Find it, the, the littlest thing, you know, any, no matter how small it is, anything that could advance the chances of success, anything that can advance, you know, the cause and keep your mind off of just constant worry, like just do something. And so it was, it, I didn't put much thought into it, you know, we just did what we had to do to like get to the next day. And I think about this sometimes now, like Mike's been, you know, we, we talk to each other more than probably anybody else in our lives. And I've heard a lot. And I've heard a lot after the fact of the details of the times, 
you know, when he was struggling with this and like, I'm really glad I didn't know these details then I was, you know, I kicked myself for being naive and not recognizing the signs before, but on the other hand, like not knowing those details, like not having those things in my mind while we were working on getting better, you know, made it, I think in retrospect, made it a little bit easier. Yeah. I remember actually sitting in the, in the, uh, my backyard, you know, smoking a million cigarettes. And I was like, Steve, you know, if you want me to like walk away from this, I'll do it. You know, I'm so sorry. I couldn't believe there's so much guilt and so much shame, you know, and, um, you have like no coping mechanisms. So I was like, I just, I, I can walk away. And he was like, just relax. <laughs> okay. You're not going anywhere. And then he was like, I would do anything for you. Just relax, you know? So yeah, I, Oh, my life. I mean, I, whatever success we have in, our, in professionally, I owe to Steve and like, I literally owe my life to this, to this man. Uh, do you remember the first restaurant week that we did? We did this restaurant week and we were like, we'll never do restaurant week. And then we ha of course had to do it because we were so fucking slow. And we, I remember like whatever number, you know, we like, I don't know, it was like break even was this, we had never hit that number, you know, in months. And it was like in the middle of winter and we did restaurant week and we'd made like $8,000 or something. And we were like, Oh my God, we're going to, we're going to do this. And then the fucking water heater bro went out the next day. It cost us twelve twelve thousand $12,000. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, restaurants, you know? So, uh, it, I mean, we got a taste of it that day. And then after that, you know, it was like, we got, um, Philly magazine gave us like number one restaurant and, uh, <laughs> um, got everybody to come back in and we at that point had been like more comfortable with what we were doing and really could provide something that was worthy and that that was it that changed it so did you guys this whole time still believe in the concept and and it was it just the fact that other people didn't get it yet or were you starting to think maybe this isn't the way to go when you mature as a chef you know and when you're a young chef it's all about you and what you want on the plate. And as you grow, you learn that it's really not about you. It's about what the customer wants on the plate. And I think we were very conscious of the fact that we weren't like striking a core, you know, striking a core with the customer. So I think we were confident that we had something, um, but I think we were looking inward for what needed to change and not sitting back and saying, people just don't get right. it. What, what changes did you make that you think made the difference? Well, we put English on the menu. <laughs> The restaurant week format was like very formulaic and we were struggling because we weren't like a appetizer entree dessert restaurant, which restaurant week was set up for. So we were sort of had to think really hard about how we were going to shoehorn our menu into the format. And we ended up hitting on something that is the way that 75% of our guests eat to this day, um, which really helps people understand how they're supposed to eat at Zahav. It gives them the choice you know, to pick what they want, but it doesn't give them so much choice that it paralyzes them and it disrupts like them having a good time. It's not anxiety provoking. And I think the original menu, there was a lot of anxiety on the faces of our guests, but in that restaurant week, you know, walking through the dining room, it was like expressions were totally different. You know, we'd sort of, we'd sort of put this framework together and to make it easy for people to eat at Sahab and that, that was a big change. Yeah. And as you started to see the momentum, I mean, you got a couple of press pieces that were phenomenal at that point. Did you feel validated? Did you feel like, yes, finally, we've made it? 
I don't, you know, I, I getting press and getting rewards are like fantastic and they feel really good, but they don't, you know, it's not what pays the bills. It's not, um, you know, really repeat business is what makes me feel the best. Yeah. You know? So when you see customers that you've seen before. Well, customers, yeah, definitely. And I think just, I don't know, interacting with guests and seeing how happy they are when they come into the restaurant is like what we want. And it's not just the guests, it's really like the relationship between us and the guests. So when our, you know, our team and the guests are like all super fired up, there's no better feeling than that. And also you like have to win an award every single night with like 300 people. Right. So we can get, you know, um, you know, we can be, uh, get like awards, we can get like trophies, we can get medals and all that. But like, if you come in tomorrow and have like a shitty experience, then it's kind of all for naught. you know? So the idea of resting on laurels, believing kind of anything that people write about you, it's like a little bit of a dangerous area for us. Um, and, and really like real true hospitality is about giving and giving and giving. It's really not about you, um, at all. Was there a moment that you were convinced that Zahav is here to stay. I think maybe just now in our 10th year, I'm like, you know, but I think that it's hard though, because, you know, a 10 year old restaurant, I mean, it'll be 11 years in a couple of days, but you know, that's, that might as well be a hundred years. And if we're not reinventing, reinvesting, um, you know, financially, but also like emotionally in the restaurant and we aren't continuing to progress, then we die. And there's nothing that would be nothing worse than really going out on a bad note. So, yeah, I mean, I think Israeli food is here to stay. And I remember in our business plan talking to all these people or telling them that, like, you know, Spain has had its time. Italy, French, Israel is like, you know, and I was like, man, this is bullshit what we're saying. <laughs> but, you know, Israeli food is a thing now in, in the U.S. and in the world. And it's really been amazing to be a part of yeah so it wasn't too long until you started working on your next restaurant concept right and it may not have been the next one in the order but it's one that's is it true that federal donuts came about by you guys going to eat fried chicken after a long zahav shift i think a couple of things were happening i was eating tons of korean fried chicken at the time we had become really good friends with tommy and bobby um and also felicia but tommy and bobby brought uh, Stumptown to Philly and Bobby lives in Pennsport and I thought Pennsport was really cool I don't we were we owned Zahav which wasn't making any money and Percy Street which is making slightly less money and they were two big restaurants and we were like terrified but also really kind of bored um, so we uh, put in a little bit enough money basically if we had lost it all it wouldn't have been that big of a deal um, and we opened Federal. Tell me about the conversations that you had between yourself when you convinced yourselves to open a coffee, donuts, and double fried chicken place. It sounds crazy when you say it out it loud. Was, uh, yeah, I mean, when you say it out loud, but I think we had this sort of like feedback loop going among the five of us that I think, you know, we all thought it was the greatest idea we ever heard and nobody was around to tell us that it wasn't. <laughs> um, so, and it was a very low risk proposition. It was almost like an art project in a way. It was, we all put a little bit of money in, you know, Bobby found this like disgusting vacant cheesesteak place, um, <laughs> that he like built with his own hands. And, um, yeah, we were making donuts in the basement of 
Federal of Percy Street Barbecue, and then we were frying chicken at Zahav. So like, the reason that all of the original fried chicken flavors were like Israeli spices, basically came from that. Yeah, and we had. It just goes to show that like the, when people tell when you tell people about your next concept, and they're like, "You guys are going to kill it." Those are the ones you have to worry about because nobody said that about Federal. <laughs> <laughs> so when it started to grow, I mean, quickly you had more. It worked, right? People loved it. Wasn't it day one? You sold out by like 9 a.m. or something crazy like that. Yeah, it's easy to sell out when you have like very little product to sell. <laughs> I guess if you only made a dozen donuts. Yeah, though. we started with ten donuts. Yeah. <laughs> But as it started to blow up, I mean, did you guys feel any surprise and like, holy shit, I can't believe that this is working? Or were you just like, yeah, we, we, we knew this would work? No, we didn't know. It was a huge surprise. And I think we've spent a lot of time trying to talk, you know, trying to dissect what, what the lightning was. And I don't know that there's, we'll ever know the answer. I do think there's, you can't tell somebody who's never heard about it, about the concept without them smiling. And I think that there's, it's just the whimsical, the whimsy of it, I think it appeals to people. And I think the product is good and and um you know it was the start for us at least and the start of a movement of people taking very simple things very streamlined menus and just trying to focus on doing them really really well and i think that um there's an appeal to that and there's a nostalgia for things like donuts and fried chicken that tapped into something so as Zahav has expanded over the years, it's been in the same building, right? It's gotten, it's just gotten bigger. But when Federal Donuts expands, it opens up a new location. What are the subtle differences there between, you know, expanding a restaurant where it is and then opening up a restaurant like in a different neighborhood in Philadelphia? Were there any surprises or, or differences that you had to cope with there? One of the nice things about having Zahav being in one place is that, you know, we're there, you know, and the team, the leaders of the restaurant are there and the people that, that breathe life into the restaurant every day are there. When you... And a big part of what I think I love about Federal is the sort of sense of community that we have in the stores because our customer base is the most diverse customer base of, by far of any of our restaurants. And the people that work there are generally happy to work there. And when you open a new location, you have to recreate that. It's not just a matter of growing in an existing base with an existing team. It's like a whole new team. And I think that's always, that's always challenging. How do you transmit the culture to a different location? How about, so we had an audience <clears throat> submission online of a question that asked what was different about opening up Federal Donuts and also Diesengolf in different cities? What challenges did you face there? Well, I mean, I think it was just sort of to the nth degree of having to transmit culture. It's not an easy thing to just do. Just a similar thing, just in a different place. Well, it is, but I mean, with add a two and a half hour flight, add Miami. Um, yeah, I remember going down for Art Basel and I get finally to the the shop, which is like sort of heart and center of Art Basel. So it took like two hours to get from the airport. I finally get there and I'm like, whoa, why are we so short staffed, you know? And the manager was like, I don't, I don't know where like any of these people are. And so I wait, right? And everybody comes in and I'm like, dude, what, you're two and a half hours late. And they were like, yeah, you know, it's Art Basel. I got super drunk last night. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, couldn't you lie? You know, but there's a... <laughs> Like, that's the excuse, but I couldn't, you can't do anything about that. I can't, we can't, like, even, you know, you can't, I couldn't, like, fire somebody and then get back on an airplane and leave. It just felt weird. And so it, it is a, it's a difficult thing to do. And I think we just do better in Philly. I think it's, there's something really awesome and beautiful about being able to sort of, like, 
plug holes and, and, and not do it over the phone, you know, and, and walk around to the stores. And I just think you sort of lose that a little bit. There are people that do really well with those things. And we're just, I think that we probably just got a little impulsive. Yeah. So it wasn't too long until you started working on a charitable restaurant, right? So what's the story behind the rooster? It's really goes hand in hand with the growth of federal because as federal was growing, like our, our issue is we, and we still take a lot of shit for like running out of product in the early days, which we almost never do anymore, but we didn't have enough space to like, you know, cut our own chicken or anything like that. And so as we grew, we finally moved into this like commissary facility. And for the first time we were able to like produce enough food for the stores. But then we realized we were like, had like 500 or sometimes almost a thousand pounds of chicken bones that we were throwing out every week. And, um, it was right around the same time that we had gotten involved as a company with Broad Street and been introduced to them. And so just those two things were rattling around in our brains at the same time. And that's where Rooster was really born, which was to sort of convert basically food waste into, um, social justice, really. Tell me about how you came across Broad Street Ministry. How did that become something that you were passionate about? So a friend of mine in the industry called me up one day and he said, I'm on this board of this great organization here. Do you want to come? Would you, would, would you come to a meeting with me and check it out? And I was like, absolutely no way. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a joiner at all. And um, I think nine times out of 10, I would have said, I would have made an excuse and not gone. But for whatever reason, I said, sure. I went to the meeting, but then really what it was, was going on a Thursday to, to see a lunch service. Yeah, you went. What did you see? They joke that it's like they're in the same business as us, just at a different price point. When you walk into Broad Street now for a meal, you're going to get greeted by a host. You're going to get shown to a table that has a tablecloth on it. It's set with, you know, silver and china. You're going to have a three-course meal served to you by a volunteer waitstaff, but that's been prepared by a professional kitchen. Um, you're going to have an opportunity to talk to people at your table. You're going to have an opportunity to interact with the volunteer staff and you're going to have an opportunity to be invited to a table, which is really like something that we all take for granted. We can go out we can go to a restaurant whenever we want and pay for hospitality. We have family and friends and social capital to spend. But when you are, you know, when you're homeless or hungry or struggling, that's one of the first things that social capital disappears real quick and you're not getting dinner invitations. You're not being invited to share a meal with people. So their approach of extending that invitation, of gaining the trust of their guests, and then being able to offer this whole suite of social services to help people get, you know, take steps towards getting back. So you said, okay, we have all these, all this extra chicken parts that we're not using for federal. We have this community that's providing hospitality to people. How can we combine those things? Exactly. And it was that you wanted to offer them soup, right? First, we were just like, we'll drop off buckets of soup at your back door and, you know, everybody will be happy. Then, did they want that? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> they're very sensitive about the term soup kitchen for sure. good reason, because they're not a soup kitchen. So they felt like that would reinforce the wrong stereotype. So they said, thanks, but no thanks. It's one of the things I learned from them early on is like how organizations like that are off so often get donations from well-meaning people of things that they absolutely do not want. Um, so I think it's, you know, it was a reminder that we need to, you know, in anything we do, we need to listen to what our guests or our clients are telling us they want and not give them what we think they want. 
Um, so we went back to the drawing board and we thought came up with, you know, what we thought was a cool idea, which was to, instead of it being a transaction between us and Broad Street, we'd add a third sort of like to the stool and engage the community and have a place where the community can come and eat and know that, you know, just by eating lunch, they're actually kind of contributing to helping make a problem that we all face a little bit better. So I have a couple questions that I ask every guest and I think we'll try one-on-one, see how that works. Uh, and I'll start with Steve. What's the common misconception about you? People see me and they're like, business guy, um, which is partly true, I guess. But um, I think the truth is like we each do a little bit of everything. Yeah. I, in the media, a lot of outlets don't mention that you're also a chef, right? Uh, they'll say that you're Mike's business partner or something like that. Um, is that something that you would want to change? I don't, no. I mean, you know, the, the people, write what, people write what they want to write. Um, I don't love... I don't like, because Steve doesn't have tattoos and doesn't say fuck every other word, he doesn't get as much press as I do, you know, and it's like uncomfortable. And I think it's like ridiculous. And alternatively, you like out in the street, you know, on the street, somebody will be talking and they'll be like, give their phone to Steve and be like, can you take a picture of me and Mike? You know, and I'm like, (laughs) we do everything together. And I'm the chef of Zahav, but I would say, more often than not, Steve probably has greater input in food company-wide. And then I think probably in our company, you know, Steve is like, you know, a thousand percent smarter than I am. But also, I think they're like, I don't know. It's like Steve and I are equal partners in everything we do. So it's just, it's kind of funny how that works. But it's, it is a difficult thing. And I think that like, we've known each other and loved each other for such a long time. It's, I guess, most of the time we can like laugh about it. Yeah. If you could send a message to yourself in the past at any moment, butterfly effect aside, so it's not going to be like, oh, you won't have what you have now, would you? I don't I really understand what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> fair. That's fair. Yeah. If I could send a message to myself in the past, it would be to articulate that question. Okay. <laughs> Where's the butterfly? Yeah. What, what? Have you ever seen the movie Butterfly Backed? No. Okay. So the idea is that if you like kill a butterfly now in 20 years, like the world is totally different because oh, of all yeah. the like cascading I think it's an effect. old like Isaac Asimov, uh, mm-hmm. like a... So thing. if you could send a message to yourself in the past, like any, any advice to at any point in the past, would you? And if so, what would you say? I would tell myself to just quit worrying so much. I mean, nine out of 10 times, it all turns out fine. And in the 10th time, there wasn't anything you could do about it anyway. So I just, I, I mean, I used to sweat and stress over the tiniest little problem and um, just a waste of energy, you know, and I wish I knew that 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah, I think we could all use that today. <laughs> uh, what excites you most about the Philly food scene today as it is in 2019? The, the restaurants that, are, that we've had that haven't worked have been, the ones that work the best are the ones that are the most personal, right? And as Mike was saying before, when we first started out in this business, if you wanted to be taken seriously as a chef, you cooked French or Italian food. Um, but now you see people pursuing the food that they grew up with, the food that represents their heritage. And we have this incredibly, incredibly diverse food scene here as a result of that, that is like taken seriously. And I think that's, I think that's really cool. I think that's how we all want to eat, you know, and that's all we want to eat at places that are genuine and not some sort of facsimile of some style of restaurant that, that people are used to eating at. I think also to you, I'd like to add to that. I think that Philly does, the Philadelphians don't care that much about hype. Like there has to be quality and we as restaurant tours have to deliver. So I like it when like big names come and everyone's like, uh-uh, 
no, beat it, you know? And then alternatively, we can have like a Filipino restaurant in like the Bourse, you know? Like it's that cool. And there's such a tapestry of culture in this city that, um, that just brings it, you know? And, I, and, I, and, and we have New Yorkers and we have people from DC that will come to Philly for the weekend to eat and experience our city. And I love it. They have to travel to come to Philly to eat. It's the best. For more on Mike Salamanov, Steve Cook, Zahav, Federal Donuts, The Rooster, Abe Fisher, Goldie, Diesengoff, and Broad Street Ministry, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash cook and solo. That's C-O-O-K-N-S-O-L-O. Here is a heartfelt special thanks to all who helped make this live show amazing, including Colleen Schmidlin, Kara Schneider, Danny Mulholland, Alex Hawkins, Jeff Myers, and everybody at World Cafe Live, Kevin Kilkenny and the Rec Philly team, and Matt Altea. Big thanks to our guests, Mike Salamanov and Steve Cook, and to Jesse Ito and Becca Craig for joining us after the interview for a Philly Food Scene Roundtable. As always, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and follow us on social at PodPhillyWho. This episode was hosted, produced, and edited by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. Once again, thank you so, so much for PodPhillyWho. My name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>